I want to start uh, this morning kind of in a bit of uh, an interactive uh, way, so I'm going to need some, um, some input, some feedback from you. Um, I want us to compile uh, together a list of terms which God uses to refer to his people. And so I'll start us off with one and kind of go from there. But, um, so for example, God refers to both his people Israel and to his church as his bride. That's a, that's a term that you see in scripture. Maybe another way to say it, the people of God are called his bride. That's one of those terms he uses, refer to his people. Uh, so what else? What are, what are some other ones that, uh, uh, that you've, you've heard for, for a term like that? Saints, okay. I didn't, treasured possession, yeah, I heard another, Dave, was it? Yeah, 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 and that kind of ties in with bride, woman, yeah, yep, yep. Servants, you cheated and looked ahead probably, maybe not, (laughs) maybe not. (laughs) Children, yep. Sheep, yes. Yeah, so that's good. Yeah, and I, there, there's more. I'm sure we could keep going. And the one we're driving at's already been mentioned anyway. Gordy, Gordy got that one for us. So servants, servants, that's interesting that, that the people of God are, that's one of the terms that he uses to refer to his people as servants, servants of God, servant of the Lord. My hunch is that uh, that's not always one that we gravitate to. Maybe is that a is that a fair statement? And I think I think there can be some different reasons for that. Um, I I would guess one of the main reasons is we maybe just don't like to think of ourselves as servants of someone else, or as under the authority of someone else. Um, I, I I think it doesn't help that our own national history is is uh, marred by a system of slavery and servitude that that dehumanized and, and held captive an entire race of people. So I think that plays into it as well. Um, so when we hear phrase like servant of God, servant of the Lord, it, it's maybe not surprising that, that our first reaction may not be one of warm fuzzies inside, kind of like we get when we talk about children of God or saints of God or something like that. But that phrase, when it's used in Scripture, servant of God, it is a, a phrase that speaks of honor and, and high esteem when it's used. It's, it's used to refer to people whom God has chosen to carry out his purposes in the world. So for example, uh, I'll give some examples. Abraham is called God's servant. So in Genesis uh, chapter 26, Verse 24, God is speaking to Isaac, Abraham's son, but he's speaking about Abraham. God says, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he calls Abraham his servant there. Uh, Moses, in Exodus 14, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. 
And even Isaiah himself, we've been in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah himself is called God's servant in chapter 20. God says, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years is a sign and portent as a portent against Egypt and Cush. And again, you can go back and read that story, but Isaiah is referred to as God's servant as well. So that's only a selection uh, of instances throughout the Old Testament, but, but to be called the servant of God was a designation of honor. Uh, it really was. And, and, and I would argue that that designation was given also in connection with their God-given calling. Um, Abraham was called to be the father of God's people. Um, Moses was called to lead the newly freed people from Egypt. David was called to be king over God's people. Isaiah was called to be God's prophet, to deliver his messages. So there's this theme that runs through the Old Testament where we see references to God's servants being called to carry out God's purposes. And I, and I think, you know, that, that definition fits perfectly with the common understanding of servant, what it means to be a servant. But there's something else that shouldn't be overlooked, and it's the, that's the fact that the nation of Israel is also referred to as God's servant. So you have people, individual people like Abraham, Moses, but you have the nation that is referred to as God's servant. So for example, in Psalm 136, uh, verses 21 and 22, it says, Give thanks to God, for he gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to Israel, his servant. His steadfast love endures forever. And what's intriguing is that when you get to the second part of the book of Isaiah, where we're, we've been for uh, last week, where we're going to be through Easter Sunday, there's kind of this explosion of references to God's people as his servant. Um, according to my count, God referred to his chosen people as his servant four times from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Isaiah chapter 39. Four times God refers to his people as his servant. And then all of a sudden you get to that last part of the book of Isaiah and we get all these references. So chapter 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. And he's not talking about the person Jacob. That's another reference to his people, Jacob. And he says, verse 9, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Chapter 43, verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen. Chapter 44, verse 1, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun whom, whom I have chosen. And again, Jacob there means his people. Uh, chapter 44, verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. Chapter 48, verse 20, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob, again, referring to the people. There's something I think a bit confusing when you think about the way that the term servant is used throughout the Old Testament compared to those references in Isaiah. As I said earlier, the term, uh, it's not only one of honor, but it, but it references carrying out God's purposes. We've been going through Isaiah. When you look at the first 39 chapters, does it seem like God's people are carrying out his purposes? <laughs> right? I mean, wow. 
I don't think I would describe it that way. In fact, a good portion of the prophecies were given because the people had rejected God and they had turned to idols and they were in danger of facing judgment. And then not only that, chapter 40 and onward was written to people who were in exile. They've experienced God's judgment. And so they were living in Babylon in captivity. So I, I'm not sure you can make a solid case that God's people were truly functioning as his servants when they're referred to in that way. It seems that they had utterly failed in their calling from God to be a kingdom of priests, a, a holy nation who would proclaim God's character to the nations of the world. Their defeat, their destruction, their captivity in Babylon, I, I think is a clear indication of that failure. So why is there this explosion of seemingly misplaced references to God's people being his servant? Can I suggest that I think it's precisely because they've failed that we're seeing all these references. I think it's because they've fallen short of their calling that God is drawing attention to it. Almost saying like, remember who you are? Remember who you are supposed to be? Even though you're not carrying that out. And then the reason I say that is because there's a second explosion of references to God's servant in the book of Isaiah. But it's a little different the second time. The section where we are this morning, chapters 49 through 55, we get this second explosion. But the servant there, although from God's people, is distinct from God's people. This section of Isaiah contains four servant songs, as they're sometimes called, that proclaim another servant who would succeed where Israel had failed. So uh, we're going to go through these. And the first song is actually found in chapter 42. So we're kind of overlapping a bit where we were last week. Uh, but I'd encourage you to turn there, uh, Isaiah chapter 42. And we're going to go through these four servant songs. Now, now, before we read this first passage, I want you to notice that, that as we progress through these four songs, uh, the, the passages become more and more clear regarding who the servant is, regarding the fact that the servant is someone distinct from the nation of Israel. And in fact, in the first passage, there's enough ambiguity that on its own, we maybe aren't even quite sure whether God is referencing the nation of Israel or someone else. So, so look with me, Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, 
to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. So again, at this point, it's possible that the servant in this passage could be the nation of Israel personified as an individual. That, that happens at times throughout scripture. They were a nation that, that they were supposed to be a nation that promoted justice for the afflicted. They, they were called out by God from among the people of the earth. They, they were to be a light for the nations. They were to be God's covenant people. That all describes, is supposed to describe the nation of Israel. But, but already, it, even though it's kind of ambiguous here, there's hints. There's hints of, of someone else. Uh, God's spirit dwelling upon him. Not growing faint or discouraged, opening the eyes of the blind, setting the prisoner free. We're kind of getting hints that maybe there's something else at work here. So perhaps it is talking about someone else. Maybe when, the, when God's people read that, they thought, what's going on here? Is this referencing someone in particular? I, I don't think it'd be a stretch to picture the people getting excited about that about this being a person. Uh, remember, they were still held captive in Babylon. They were, they were still uh, um, facing, in a, in a way, God's judgment for their sin. So, so bringing forth justice, uh, taking them by the hand and keeping them, setting prisoners free, that would have sounded great <laughs> to Jews in captivity in Babylon. That would have sounded great. But another thing we're going to see as we progress through these passages, not only does the servant himself become more and more clear, but the deliverance which he brings will become more and more clear as well as we progress through this. It's a bit ambiguous here, but it's going to start coming into greater focus as we go through this. So, so let's press on. That's the first servant song. Turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 49. This is where we get the second servant song. Chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Again, it's a bit ambiguous, but there's some clearer clues in this second song. The, the, the servant is referred to as Israel 
in verse 3, but also as the one who brings God's people back to him in verse 5. So how can the servant both be Israel and bring Israel back? Again, it's a clue that there's, there's something different happening here. And again, we see that deliverance is promised. God's people will be raised up and brought back to him. Uh, in verse 6, we see that. But we also see that, that the deliverance, the salvation, will not be limited to just God's people. God's salvation will reach to the end of the earth, as it says there. Another clue that something different there's something different about this promised deliverance. Let's go on to song number three. <clears throat> Servant song number three is in Isaiah chapter 50 and starting in verse four. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out, my, pull out the beard. I, did not, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, Walk by the light of your fire, and by the torches that you've kindled, this you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This is where we really start seeing that there's a distinction between Israel and God's servant. Most obviously, the, re the servant is referred to as not being rebellious in verse 5, not turning backward. Uh, he, he cannot be declared guilty in verse 9. After reading Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, we know that can't possibly be true of the nation of Israel. They, they are guilty. They have turned backwards. They have been rebellious. So clearly there's, the, there's something different about this servant. They're, again, their suffering in captivity was proof of that, that they were guilty. And we're also given other details about the servant. His back will be struck, his, his beard hair will be pulled, he will be disgraced and spit upon. Uh, this is a pretty strong indication that, that the deliverance, or at least the method used to secure the deliverance, won't be through worldly strength and power. We don't get that indication at all. It's quite the opposite in this passage. And as for those who will be delivered, it's those who are without light in the darkness. Again, this reference to the world being delivered. Now, now before we get to the last servant song, because I mean, that's where Isaiah pulls out all the stops in his description of that servant, 
We can't forget the ongoing tension that, that has existed throughout the book of Isaiah. And I don't remember if we've specifically highlighted this tension yet, but maybe you've sensed it as we've gone through this. That there's been two main prophecies, uh, types of prophecies, going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 1. One form of prophecy was meant to warn the people of looming judgment due to their rebellion and their sin. That's one of the prophecies you see over and over. The other form of prophecy was meant to show that God's purposes were being accomplished and that there was hope for God's people. Those are the two main, main prophecies. Judgment is coming because of sin. There is hope for God's people. The tension in all of that comes when we try to discern how a rebellious, sinful, guilty people could find hope in God. There, there's a tension there, isn't there? I mean, after all, if, if they are guilty and if they are deserving of the judgment which loomed, why would they have reason for hope? I, can God change his mind and decide not to send judgment upon sin? If he did that, would he still be just? I mean, there's, there's the tension there. But if, if he moved forward with complete judgment for sin, then what kind of hope could the people possibly have. And if he did that, would he really be faithful? Would he really be loving? I mean, there, there, there's this underlying tension that kind of runs through the book. The answers to, to that tension are given in this next passage. And, and this passage not only gives us the clearest picture of the servant in this part of Isaiah, I think it gives us the clearest understanding outside of the New Testament regarding what took place at the death of Jesus. And I'm giving it away to you right there, who this servant is. I mean, this has got to be the clearest picture outside of the New Testament. And this final song, this fifth song, is kind of organized into five stanzas of three verses each. So we're just going to go through them one by one. And as we progress through this song, we find kind of a, a pre-gospel proclamation that both foretells what this servant is going to do and how this tension can be held between God's justice and his mercy. So look with me. This is basically the gospel being proclaimed 500 years before it would even take place through Jesus. It's pretty incredible. Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13. The first stanza of it says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. In this first stanza, we get kind of an overview of, of, uh, of what's going to come here. The, the servant will act wisely and will eventually be exalted for his actions. Uh, but in providing deliverance, he's going to become marred beyond recognition, beyond human semblance. Uh, his repulsion in appearance really is only matched by, by his cleansing of the nations. His deliverance is going to be so extraordinary that, that kings will be silent as they ponder the incredible act that has taken place. 
And how is all of this going to come about? Well, let's look at the next stanza. Chapter 53, verse one. Who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, like how can all of this happen? <laughs> and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So the second stanza tells us that this man would not be one whom people would be drawn to because of a handsome appearance or anything like that. Uh, in fact, he would be despised and rejected by men. They would hide their faces from him. Um, he, he would be acquainted with sorrow and with grief. And that stands in stark contrast to the powerful rulers of the day, when you think about it. Um, they were adorned with majesty um, uh, due to their power, due to their influence. Uh, others sought them out rather than hide their faces from them. I mean, they, they, they were highly esteemed and accepted by their followers. The servant of the Lord would be none of those things. None of those things. His deliverance, which he brought about, came separate from those kinds of things. So how did that deliverance come about? Well, verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A servant of the Lord bore griefs. Um, he carried sorrows. He was stricken smitten and afflicted. He, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was wounded. Uh, all sins were placed on him. This is an incredible picture of the servant, and, and this is where it becomes indisputable that this servant is someone separate from God's people, right? Came from God's people, but yet is distinct from God's people, because it wasn't just griefs that the servant bore, but griefs of God's people. It wasn't just sorrows he carried, but the sorrows of God's people. It wasn't just transgressions for which he was pierced, but the transgressions of God's people. Um, iniquities, same thing. He wasn't just crushed for iniquities, but the iniquities of God's people. And then even more than that, it wasn't just the, the griefs, sorrows, transgressions, iniquities of God's people in captivity in Babylon. It's yours and mine as well. We are included in this also, all of us. I mean, it says at the end of verse six, it was for the iniquity of us all. And let, we shouldn't let that be something that, that brings us shame when we think about it. I think that that can be a way we're tempted to response is to, to hang our head when we read that. Man, and there's a weight to it. I'm not denying that, but, but we ought to let that deepen our understanding of, of God's love, 
when we think about this. Uh, we ought to let that increase our trust in God when we think about this and read about this. Right? It, it, it's not just God's people in ancient Israel facing threat from Assyria or Babylon that, that deserved to experience judgment. It's, it's you and me as well. Uh, we deserve that judgment. Every one of us has rebelled against God. We've rejected him in one way or the other in our life. Uh, uh, not a one of us is innocent. All have sinned, it says in Romans. And it, it can be difficult to admit that the servant hung on the cross because of my sins. I mean, that's, that's not something I like to think about, but it's a reality I can't deny and shouldn't deny. Uh, it was my griefs, my sorrows, my transgressions, my iniquities that, that he took upon himself. And there is a wonderful outcome of that. The result, well, first it talks about what was the result for the servant as he bore those things. So verse 7 speaks of the result for him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. <clears throat> the, the oppression, the affliction which the servant took upon himself led to his death. That was the outcome for him led to his death. He was cut off from the land of the living. He, he, he made, uh, they made his grave with the wicked. And, and in case we're even tempted just a little bit to fall back into thinking that there, man, such a brutal death must be deserved in some way by him, we're reminded again in verse 9 that he'd done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He was completely innocent in the matter even though looking at the situation with our own two eyes might have tempted us to think otherwise. How can a person be treated that way if they haven't done something? That's the reality, that he was innocent, no deceit in his mouth. He willingly received upon himself what we earned as the result of our sins. He willingly took that upon himself. And then the fifth stanza tells us the result for us. All right, the servant died for us, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him, uh, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The one crushed by God due to our sins made himself to be our guilt offering, is, is what it says there. He bore our iniquities, and because of that, the many will be accounted righteous. That, that's, 
the result for us. He took that on himself. He experienced death. We are counted righteous. He was crushed. We're made righteous. He was judged. We are forgiven. Um, He experienced death. We are given victorious life through that. And even though it doesn't say it overtly here, the servant's resurrection is foreshadowed. You you can see it come out in this. Uh, Verse 12, the, the suffering servant who died will receive a portion with the many who've been made victorious, uh, who've been made righteous, who've been given victorious life. Uh, he will divide the spoil with them. It's, it's referencing this servant still being alive, even though he has died. So it doesn't say it overtly, but, but it's there. We see that resurrection lies ahead. As I said, this was written nearly 500 years before Jesus walked the earth. Isn't that incredible? I mean, you would think it was somebody recording what they watched happen at the moment. But it was 500 years before Jesus' crucifixion. And let's think about that a little differently then. That means that as a Jewish man trained in Judaism, who impressed the Jewish leaders at the temple with his knowledge of the scriptures, Jesus would have been well acquainted with this text. Uh, He'd read it, not just read it before, but he knew what it meant. And yet, you know, I mean, he he knew what was coming. He was, I mean, you can read it. I mean, he can read what was going to happen to him. It's no wonder that when Jesus was in Gethsemane on the night of arrest, he said his sorrowful, his soul was sorrowful, even to the point of death, right? Sweating blood. Man, isn't that crazy that, Jesus didn't just kind of, kind of know what was going to happen. I mean, he could have read about it firsthand. I think that reality <clears throat> makes it that much more incredible when we hear Jesus in the garden praying, Father, your will be done. Not just, Father, whatever your will might be. Like, Father, I know what your will is. And I know what that means for me. May it be done. I mean, man, and he's innocent. I mean, that, that's, <laughs> he's innocent of it all. And he says, may your will be done. I'm going to have some time to, to reflect on that. Uh, Val and Megan are, are going to come sing a song focused on that reality. And so I, you know, as they do, so I, I would just encourage you to reflect on that. Reflect on the reality that Jesus knew what lie before him. And yet he still fulfilled the purpose that God had for him to be the suffering servant.
you can come forward and prepare to take communion. Chapter 54 and 55 of Isaiah go on to tell how God's people ought to respond and why in, in light of all of that. Chapter 54 speaks of redemption and restoration and, and God's love and compassion and uh, it, it speaks of the servants of the Lord, once that description once again being used about God's people, uh, it says that they have a heritage. In chapter 55, it, it applies the, the wonderful blessings to all who call upon the Lord. Everyone can have their thirst quenched. Everyone can find joy and peace. Everyone can be abundantly pardoned. So how ought we respond? Those chapters say to sing and, and fear not and come and seek the Lord. Um, the singing we've, we've already done today, we'll do one more time this morning. Um, as we prepare to take communion in remembrance of the suffering servant, we can do the rest of those things as well. We can come to him freely. Uh, we can seek the Lord and call upon him. Um, and we can do so without fear. Um, Jesus is the, the suffering servant. It didn't say his name in those songs, but it basically said everything else. Jesus is that suffering servant who's taken our iniquity <coughs> upon himself. Um, he offers us deliverance, both from slavery to sin and from the judgment that our sin deserves. And so through that suffering servant, we can have salvation. So we take communion together in remembrance of that this morning. <clears throat>